Hey friends and family, it's Tyler Reams, and this podcast is a space for conversation to explore critical issues such as racism, privilege, and the political divides that keep us from seeing the humanity in one another. On this show, discomfort is welcomed and encouraged because learning and growing can sometimes hurt. But your story matters. And while I am left and white, I recognize that not everyone is, and that's okay. My goal is to learn where people come from and find out why they see the world the way they do. So welcome to Left and White. This week, we're talking about the history of racism in the United States. Here to help me is my friend, Brittany Barham. We taught together for four years, and much of what makes me a good teacher, I learned from her. Brittany and I are going to discuss the history of the United States through the lens of racism and oppression of black people. We should name that many groups have suffered throughout our history, starting with the taking of native lands, slavery, Japanese internment, rejection of Latin American immigrants, and more. We should recognize that the thread of American history has been one of taking and oppression, and we'll attempt to show that through historical documents and evidence. We hope you enjoy this, and that it leads to some stimulating conversations in your circles of friends and family. So this is our second recording of this episode. Um, I was excited yesterday to get home and, and edit, only to find an hour-long uh, blank audio file. Um, <laughs> so the ghost of Jefferson uh, was trying to stop us there. Um, he didn't want us to didn't record, want us to record on, on the 4th July 3rd. Yeah, he wants here. us to specifically record on the 4th. Yeah, so here we are. Um, why don't you tell us about yourself if, with any relevant details of your choosing? Yeah, um, I'm Brittany Barham, and I am a U.S. history teacher. I teach 11th to 12th grade, so high school. Um, I've taught with Tyler for four years. You're here. And I'm excited to talk about, I don't know, approaching history, you know, with a critical lens, Mm -hmm. also with an educated lens, also with actually Mm -hmm. looking at the documents. Yes. Those sorts of things. The evidence. And where did you gain your uh, training as a historian? Oh, right. Yeah. I went to Texas Uh, (laughs) A&M. The illustrious. Very good. Yeah. The infamous Texas A&M University. Um, And I have a bachelor's in history. I was saying yesterday, I'm not sure if that makes me a historian, mm-hmm. but like, you know, I think that it gave me some of the tools to be able to uh, research primary and secondary documents well. So, yeah. eh, I'm like, which is what historians do is look right. at is look at the historical evidence and the documents and, and analyze and draw those conclusions, which is what we're going to do today. Exactly. Exactly. Um, cool. So. It is July 4th, and this is a really timely day to be doing this episode, considering the Declaration of Independence begins with the phrase, all men are created equal, but was written by men who own slaves. Um, Around 10 years later after that, the less-than-humanness of black people was codified in the Constitution with the Three-Fifths Compromise, which we'll mention a little bit more. Um, Then it was another 80, 90 years until the Civil War, which solved slavery in some ways, but in other ways really just reimagined it. Um... And so then we have the Civil Rights Movement another 80, 90 years after that. Um, So some people get really upset when we look at America through this critical lens of what our history has been. Um, But I think that the problems that existed at the beginning of this country are things that still persist today. Um, We'll kind of go into that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that we are a land of freedom and opportunity, I think, is a really good idea. But we also have to recognize how that has not rung true for a lot of people throughout history as as well as modern times. also timely uh, in light of the president's speech last night at Mount Rushmore. Um, Oof. <laughs> shall, we, shall we read a bit of, of the speech? I think we need to read an excerpt where our profession specifically has been called out. A little bit. Um, and so I just want to, you know, for anyone listening, I don't think that history teachers are treasonous, but like, right. I mean, we've been accused of it. So let's go ahead and read this sure. excerpt. Um, so, our children are taught in school. No, I won't. I won't. Yeah, I was like, I can't. I can't <laughs> That's not bad. That. <laughs> <clears throat> our children are taught in school to hate their own country and to believe that the men and women who built it were not heroes, but villains. The radical view of American history is a web of lies. All perspective is removed. Every virtue is obscured. Every motive is twisted. Every fact is distorted. Every flaw is magnified until the history is purged and the record is disfigured beyond all recognition. This movement is openly attacking the legacies of every person on Mount Rushmore. They defiled the memory of Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Roosevelt. Today we will set history and history's record straight. Tell me about Mount Rushmore. So Mount Rushmore in general, it's problematic from the start because the land in which it is built on was part of the Sioux 
um, like land holdings, the sovereign Sioux Nation in the mm-hmm. 1800s. And basically what happened is the U.S. discovered some gold there and mm-hmm. was like, oh, we made this treaty with you, but like we're definitely going to backtrack on that mm-hmm. and we're going to have to ask you to leave. So it's not like Jefferson's fault that the Washington Monument, I'm sorry, that the Mount Rushmore exists. No, no, no. Of course, of course. Right. But it's a looking at what like we as a country did to the land of people that were here before us. Correct. And and basically we blatantly um, broke a treaty um, mm-hmm. to obtain this land. So, and then later on, so when Mount Rushmore is built, it's actually in the 1930s as part of a, a New Deal art project, which then it's like, God, oh, like, I don't know, the New Deal's cool. Yeah, exactly. But like, this was kind of just like a random thing. And mm-hmm. then like, it, it really just is kind of, not cool because the the mountains in which it's built on for the Sioux's original the religion, six, the six grandfathers, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's like it's a sacred you know yeah. place for their religion, and so you know that's just pretty much like a middle finger to sure their heritage. Well, good point about um, FDR and like the so like I think economically looking at what the New Deal and of course going into mm-hmm. World War II uh, did for like American economics, and we can I, I like the New Deal. I think there's a lot of good things that we could apply today and, and try to redo today. But we also have to reckon with with even though we like that FDR did that, we also don't like Executive Order ninety sixty six, which we'll talk about in a bit with internment of Japanese citizens on the West Coast. Um, so it's I think to to the point of being critical of our history, we can we can look at the positives that these mostly men did, um, but we also have to be really like clear and honest about their shortcomings. Right, and I think that that's kind of the point here. Whereas Trump in his speech last night is insinuating that teachers are teaching children to hate our country. Whereas I would think that we are like empowering students to like really research our history mm-hmm. well and to know the full story, like and to actually like look at the evidence and documents themselves. It helps with literacy. It helps with critical thinking, mm-hmm. and it helps with their understanding of the full story. History is not the study of history is not intended to be a propaganda machine. It right. is intended to be a study of the past. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do that because you're trying to just have a only positive narrative, like you, you lose the whole point of what history is. Can a person love America while still being honest that we haven't actually lived up to the ideals that we were founded on? I think so because I mean. We are trying to get to those ideals, yeah. right? I think that this is all like part of that process of whenever our country is founded, the ideals that they like set out were not being met and were not really planned for structurally. Um, and so we have to continue to try and get to that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All that enlightenment thinking. Yes. So, I mean, so to that point, um, we're going to attempt to go through some examples throughout U.S. history that that racism was literally written into our laws and into our structure. And so we're going to show those examples through through documents. Um, and you've chosen that approach. Yep. Why is that approach important to use documents and historical evidence? So I think it's so important whenever you're talking about history and specifically talking about the history of race and racial oppression in the United States to actually look at the documents. So a lot of times I think people just are like, oh, like, I, as an individual, am not racist, therefore racism is solved. Instead of actually examining that since 1607, um, Jamestown founding, the United States, or what was then the colonies and later became the United States, was structurally putting together a system of oppression with legal ground and basis, Mm. set up through our laws and um, government structures. And that is hard to undo, um, especially since it had years and years and years of um, what was that called? One of the laws in place. Precedence. Precedence. Yeah. Yes, not a lawyer. They had all these years of precedence um, that they could, you know, base mm-hmm. later laws off of, later cases. So you have some to, examples of some of those precedents. I do. Yes. So we're going to start off with looking at these primary document of the, well, this is several primary documents, actually. What's a primary document for those that don't know? So a primary document is a document that is written or created at the time in that year you were trying to study as a historian. So mm-hmm. if I want to research... Um, the American Revolution, my primary documents are going to be documents that were written and created in 1770s, 1780s. Which can include newspaper articles. Newspaper articles. Uh, government documents. Yep. Laws. Letters. Letters. Written by people. Government docs. Mm-hmm. All sorts of things. Cool. Um, it can even include images, paintings. 
Okay. Things like that. So as it doesn't well. have to be. It could be a picture. It could be a picture, oh. and like now, modern, like you know, more modern history can be videos, um, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, but so it, it's important to kind of take a look at these specifically. Mm-hmm. And so, everything we talk about is going to be linked um, on the on the episode page at leftandwhite.com. So if you want to look at any of these documents and analyze them for yourselves, as we're doing right now, um, they will all be posted along with other resources that we have. Right, yeah. So this first document that will be on that website, we're going to talk about it. It's um, a timeline of the slave law in colonial Virginia. So we're talking about the structures Mm -hmm. that were set up in Virginia even before the United States was even a thing. Um, And so what begins to happen um, in the early 1600s in Virginia is they shift from, they had a process um, called indentured servitude, right? Mm -hmm. Which indentured servitude is you are essentially enslaved, but there's an expiration date. So like a person has an indenture, which is like a document and it says, has your name on it. And it has an an end date. Mm -hmm. At this date, you will be released from bondage. So it's a little bit different than um, what I think we think about today as like what slavery has been in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1640, there was a um, black indentured servant who as punishment for running away um, from the person who held an indenture, he was sentenced under Virginia colonial law to have an indenture for life. Okay. So it sets up the first time of allowing in the colonies for someone to get lifelong indenture, mm-hmm. um, which is slavery. Which um, starts to make us different. Because I, I hear the argument a lot about like when we look at America's legacy of slavery, people say, well, there are other places in the world that had slavery as well. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And we agree that it's like sucks equally no matter what because it's slavery. Right. But what made us unique was this emergence of lifetime servitude. Right, lifetime. And a, a servitude that you are born into and mm. is decided by your race. Okay. Um, so that's the next part. So in as the laws continue, um, in the 1660s, they begin to have higher punishments for people who are running away um, from their indentures. Additionally, um in 1662, Virginia enacts a law that says any children of an indentured servant also is, and it specifically lists um, for black women. It draws a color line there, mm-hmm. and it gives it. It says that any of their children will also serve in the condition of the mother. So that it extends the process of lifelong, permanent, like generational enslavement mm-hmm. for the black people of Virginia, the colonies of Virginia. Right. Okay. And so it, it really just begins to escalate. And that's pretty quick. I mean, that's 1607 is when Jamestown and already by 1662, you have begun to set up this structure of oppression against the black community in mm-hmm. the colonies. <clears throat> so, you know, and it continues to go on. Um, if you want to take a look at all of these laws, there are several laws that are put in that continue to codify um, and create a system of slavery. Um, in 1705, though, there is a law um, that really kind of creates what is known as like the Virginia Slave Code. Mm-hmm. Um, and this law, it creates where it, it like gets rid of um, marriage between any white or um, black person. It forbids all sorts of like there's like specific punishments of like pounds of tobacco if you are found you know doing this it, it pretty much just draws Wait, i'm the sorry p- there was you could get punished for having a certain amount of tobacco on your person you would no 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 so if you were married to someone who oh, okay. was not in your race you would have to pay a fine of oh i see i'm hearing tobacco. that i'm hearing that as almost like a tie-in to today with like marijuana laws and stuff oh, like that. but i realize that's not the same thing right right right, right. no and so it, it ends up just being um further drawing the line and this what, what's really significant about the 1705 law is it is um also adapted by other colonies at the time who are like, oh my gosh, Virginia's creating this system mm-hmm. where we can abuse people for their entire life and their children's lives and their grandchildren's life and make a lot of money off of it. And so they codify it as well. And so I think it's important to recognize, I think a lot of times people think that racism can be solved with just individual actions. Mm-hmm. But the people that created the systems of oppressions, they knew it wasn't just about individual actions. They were trying mm. to put this into law because they knew that government was going to be able to back them up in these terrible things that they were doing. Yeah, and and to that point, it wasn't. It also took a long time to undo many of these laws. Um, right. So, like, 
interracial marriage um, wasn't until 1967 in the Supreme Court case Loving versus Virginia, where it was struck down that you could have laws that within the states that banned uh, interracial marriage. So 1967, that was that became a federal thing. It's like 260 years like I, yes, after. That's a long time. Virginia starts this process. That is crazy. So Virginia was adapting <coughs> colonial law into their state even when the United States mm-hmm. was in, um, created, um, and it, it really just continued to oppress the black community um, pretty much permanently um, in in this society. Um, So there's lots of other um, laws that you can read about on this timeline that continue to show just how thorough um, the state of Virginia or the colony of Virginia was in Mm -hmm. creating this divide Mm -hmm. and oppressing. Yeah, and, and you know Virginia's not unique in that either. No, exactly. And this was this was, was adopted. Their by, ideas were borrowed by the correct. actual United States government once it once it was founded. Exactly. This was all adopted into the mm. states upon the creation of the U.S. Cool. Yikes. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's see what's next. Um, so let's talk about like the actual founding of America and like what was happening around that time. Um, right. So you've got the Declaration of Independence: All men are created equal, which, as we said, you know maybe not. Um, yeah. So they, you know, they, they wrote this while while owning slaves themselves, um, and so it's this idea at that time of all men being created equal, probably in their minds didn't even include black people who they saw as subhuman. That's the issue, and so it's like <clears throat> so in their minds, like yes, all men are created equal, but those people aren't people. Correct, because the they had a separate view legally. You can look at this like this timeline. Level. They mm. had um, created a system that labeled legally um, people of color as property rather than human. And so for them, that wasn't even a reality. And even when Thomas Jefferson, there's that whole, what a debate, he like tried to put in a clause about the abolishment of slavery in the Declaration of Independence, but it was taken out. And I think to me, the, the issue is then if you look at the rest of Jefferson's life, he did not, maybe he had this idea Mm-hmm. But he never lived up to it. On his deathbed, he was, like, surrounded by enslaved persons right. who he viewed as his property until, with his dying breath, mm-hmm. did not give up that practice. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, I don't know, like, actions show different than, like, maybe philosophy. And also, I mean, there's some crazy um, Jefferson documents Oh my gosh! You guys want to learn more about Jefferson? Uh, yes, there's no shortage of, of information. Maybe um, I'm gonna say <clears> I'll <throat> add this one. There's, okay. some, there's a, a hot Jefferson document where he really, in um, his reflections on, as his role in leadership in Virginia, just yeah. basically reveals his whole anti-slavery thing was was fake. Mm. Well, it, it, in in the Declaration, um, almost having a grievance against slavery, but then taking it out. Right. Um, which, Jeff- which I believe Jefferson wrote that. Um, and it, it basically it basically blames the king of England for giving them the institution of slavery. Right. And says, you know, we reject this. We, re- you know, we reject this ownership of another person. But I feel like that was just all talk, because not only because other documents by, uh, by Jefferson disprove that, but also the fact that that particular grievance was not included in the Declaration of Independence in its final draft. Correct. And I think in the actions <clears throat> of his person, where he didn't actually stop using that institution mm-hmm. he, it was it's like yes placing blame on others but he never took the ownership himself mm-hmm. um bomber yeah should we jump ahead to, to the civil war do you have other i guess you have uh secession documents here right yeah um or I think, frederick we can talk douglas. about frederick douglas because that's a little bit before yeah. um specifically because it's the fourth of july yes um if you follow the National Park Service on Twitter, yes. highly recommend. They shared um, a reading today of Frederick Douglass's most famous speech, which is, What to the Slave is the 4th of July. Great speech. And I love this speech. Um, we read this, at least excerpts. It's quite long. We read excerpts of it in my class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to read one little section of it um, that I think just really kind of sums up his whole... Um, message he's trying to do. So it says, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. 
And he goes on and continues to discuss just how for Americans, we celebrate the 4th of July as this big idea of independence and freedom for all people. Mm-hmm. And yet for so many, um, that was not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, there, like we just were talking about, yeah. they did not actually mean all men in the 4th of July. So especially if you're an enslaved person, mm-hmm. it's it's a mockery to your existence yeah, as so a human. He's, he's giving this speech to a group of, of other people who probably would agree with the same thing he, he does, which right. is why he was asked to speak to them. But, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of imagining him getting all, you know, frazzled and grasping pearls and whatnot. I'm like, oh my goodness. What yeah. does he say? I was like, what do you expect him to say? They're like, you invited a former slave to talk to you at like the 4th of July. Like, Hot he's dog gonna, drops out of mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's like. They, they, they take off their like Old Navy, like American flag shirts. Yeah, like, like, abandon the flag shirt on the ground but in 1852. Just, <laughs> I, just, I just love his like fiery response to them. And, and my, right. my guess is, you know, I, I've listened to the, um, I think it's Morgan Freeman or someone who like reads it on YouTube and just like this very calm voice right. i wonder if he gave it very calm or impassioned i don't know but either way yeah. these people are probably like oh, i guess you, you probably got a point right yeah. i mean because i mean they invited him as a group of abolitionists mm-hmm. to speak on the fourth of july of the big celebration and it's kind of like he's like this is so ironic that i'm being asked to speak right now yeah, thank, on this thank holiday. y'all for coming yeah yeah literally <laughs> it's like he's like i'm gonna give you an opportunity to reflect and so people were mm-hmm. questioning i think a lot of people think like oh americans hate the fourth of july now i'm like people were clearly questioning this holiday in 1852 this yeah. is something that has always been kind of a, a time to reflect and analyze history's a circle yeah. and i think a lot of people don't realize that because we're only living in the time that we are right now so you know i was i was getting all inflamed on on the internet this morning when i woke up just seeing the different sides of how people perceive this particular holiday you know i see i see my, my black friends still speaking about it in a certain way in fact this was uh shared by uh chelsea alcantara um who who taught in our district for a number of years mm-hmm. um and you know, just interesting seeing her perspective on the on the Trump speech from last night, right. and then other people who say, you know, how dare you criticize America on this day? Say, it, that speaks to two things, I think. Number one, what has been your experience in America, mm-hmm. and how does that make you perceive this day? Uh, and then also, to what degree have we looked at history and seen, as you said, this conversation was happening 150 years ago? Right. It's not new. Not there's new always, at all. There's always been this this critique, and I think the the most shameful thing we've done is not authentically dealt with with those critiques in some ways. Right. So. Well, and also I think it's like important for us to consider specifically on the 4th of July, like do we actually agree with free speech? If Mm. we're not allowed to have a critical lens when talking about our history and, you know, the systems of oppression that are still impacting so many people of color today, Mm -hmm. do we actually agree in free speech or are we just, you know, supposed to continue this propaganda train? I don't know. Yeah. 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 Which we'll get into that a little bit more, I think. Right. The modern day implications of this. Um, should we let me let me check my notes? Um, so we got Frederick Douglass. We're about to start the Civil War. Um, yes. Should we jump to like what was the Civil War about in your mind? <laughs> so so and when I say your mind, I mean you're going to prove it using the documents that that you're about to show us. Right. As a historian, like I said, I'm not sure if I get to call myself that, A&M, but gig like Gigum. I went to LSU. I don't know what I am. I got a bachelor's degree in history, so we're gonna say historian for now. Um, it's important, I think, again, that we look at the documents. I think so many people say, when I was growing up in Oklahoma, learning about Civil War history in mm-hmm. my eighth grade class, sitting in Ponca City, Ponca East, City. East Middle School, um, basically what was advertised about the Civil War is like it was an issue of states' rights. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, whatever, because the type of history class that I've always had was exposed to up until that point was you sit there, you take notes, you listen to the teacher, you don't talk. And you just leave, right? So it's like, teacher telling you what is the history. You, you know, memorize it, hope for the best. Um, It wasn't until much later where I was, like, taught the skills of actually studying history, like, through Mm -hmm. a critical lens and, like, through actual, like, document research. And I think it's important to look at the documents of what even the South thought the war was about. Yeah. Because they're pretty clear. So if we take a look at, um, this is also going to be included on the, Website, mm-hmm. the Texas Secession Documents. Oh, my. Um, so when, well, it's actually the, the constitution the, of the you know, state of Texas as under a new 
what they thought was a new country when they were committing treason. We're looking at the, the humanities texts documents. Yes. The oh, humanities so it's a, texts. this is a collection of a lot of different things from a from a training. So y'all can actually see a lot of things that have been put together to talk about this. Yeah, several documents in this. And the one that says, uh, Declaration of the Causes Which Impel the State mm-hmm. of Texas to Secede from the Federal Union. And in this, um, it talks about how she was received as a Commonwealth holding, maintaining protecting institution known as slavery. They actually outlined from the get-go that mm-hmm. one of the key reasons they are leaving the United States is because their right their state right to own slaves and to uphold an institution of slavery was being um, impeded on. So that was, I, I think it's crazy that we try and not even, like we try and cover this up. Mm-hmm. And yet if you were talking to a Texan in 1861 when this document is written, mm-hmm. I think that they would self-identify. Oh yeah, this is you know, slavery is a big issue with this. Right. Or maybe they wouldn't have called it that. Maybe. Make, so the argument we hear now, I think, if we're talking about history as circular and how these things have repeated themselves, I always hear the economic argument. Right. Or I always hear, like, law and order or safety or crime. And all these things have, in some ways, become coded language for race. Because what, right. what, we'll, what we'll talk about in a bit is how, like, even though we have these laws and these systems built into our society, in a lot of ways, those laws and systems still exist, but they don't explicitly say black people. They don't explicitly say Hispanic people or whatever it happens to be. They are, there are codes. There are codes. Codes and like economics, codes like jobs. Right. And so I, my guess is they were probably, even though it does say slavery in these actual documents, right. I'm trying to imagine the average farmer in the South it was an agrarian culture. Slavery was an economic engine that allowed the South to become competitive with the ways that they did things. And so my my guess is the average person might have described it as, you know, this is this is our economics. This is how we survive. This is which doesn't make it good. Right. But it's just interesting how we can find ways to justify certain things um, when it's actually very clear what the, those in power who wrote these documents were were pushing for. Well, I think that it's important to recognize that this was an entire legalized system of oppression. Mm-hmm. It was much bigger than your individual farmer's actions. It was right. legally promoted and secured in the laws of the individual states, which allowed for this institution of oppression mm-hmm. to exist. Mm-hmm. And that's where we talk about, like, it's really a structural issue of racial oppression. Mm. Um, and it includes lots of individual acts as well, like that lead up to this. But right. the main, it, it's so much bigger than that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, as Killer Mike says, slavery is the cornerstone of U.S. economics. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It, it was, and to an extent still is. Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. So you would say Civil War about slavery, yes? Civil War, absolutely about slavery. States' rights to own slaves. If you yeah. want to chat with me about this, I don't know, For, comment on Tyler's yes. Instagram. Yes, send me a nasty message. I'll um, send you an email back. Yes. But, no, but, but I think that's, if you look at these documents, I think, and, and again, you, you and I in our class right. would not say... The Civil War is about slavery. I would actually probably never say that phrase in my class. Well, I, Not because it leads into like a personal opinion. I do no. think it's the conclusion I have come to, but I would share these documents with them and right. allow them to come to their own conclusion. And then the first kid that's like, wait a second, was it about slavery? I, was like, I don't know. What do you think? Exactly. And then you get that conversation going in that class and you have them using that historical evidence. So to everyone out there who you know thinks that teachers are treasonous, like this is... This is how Brittany and I run our classes, and I can speak for for us, but I can also speak to many of the people that I know in the education community that I think do really steward well the position of power and responsibility that we have over kids. It would be it would be wrong for us to, even though we have our own valid viewpoints, which we are allowed to have as humans. Right. Um, I think that for kids to develop their own authentic views on the way the world is and to develop those perspectives, they have to come to that conclusion on their own. And if that's a different conclusion than me or you, that's okay. Right. That's okay. But you give them well, the tools. We can tools. continue to talk about that. Right. You give them the mm-hmm. tools to be able to analyze the evidence and documents on their own. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there should be a scenario anymore in history classrooms where teachers are talking for the full class period and no. students are just oh, taking God, notes. No. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't even actually teach the students very much of what you're even saying. Like, well, no students check out after 15 minutes if you're absolutely. talking. Well, and great point about, uh, like, yesterday when we recorded this the first time, neither of us could remember what year the Constitution was actually <laughs> right? like, ratified or signed or whatever. But And so we kind of, you know, we're scrambling on Google and deciding whether or not we should cut out that part of the audio because it's a little embarrassing. But ultimately, like, I don't care when it was, when exactly it right. was done. Both of us know for certain what was in it. 
Correct. We know the three-fifths compromise. We know the amendments. Like that's the important thing, and then we have we have to get kids toward that as well. Absolutely, we need to be teaching kids the literacy skills and the critical thinking skills mm-hmm. to be able to analyze these historic documents for themselves and to mm-hmm. be able to have the writing skills then to write their own understanding, mm-hmm. which is what the study of history is. That's what historians do. Yes. So according to U.S. history, the Civil War is over. Yeah, yes. Abraham Lincoln was a great man. What was the tweet? Was it, oh, Abraham Lincoln, oh yeah, it was just like, and Abraham Lincoln freed all Freed all the slaves, slaves. yeah. And then Martin Luther King had a big uh, walk. <laughs> but, but then he got killed by the very last racist. Right, yeah. right, it was like, Malcolm X shouldn't have over. been so mean. Yes. Or something like, crazy like that. Uh, yes, uh, so, but but that's that's the, I saw someone describe it as like the Disneyfication of U.S. history. It's just yes. like the romantization of, of, of certain things, when really it's so much more serious than that. It is, and unfortunately, we as humans, I think we like stories that have like a very specific conclusion Mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. hard for us to like be like, oh, like maybe this is not over yet. Maybe the story hasn't actually, you know, ended. And that's tough. Um, I agree. Should we look at South Carolina real quick? Oh, right. I feel like that has some strong evidence as well about the reasons for secession. Yeah. So South Carolina is, you know, notoriously the first um, state to attempt to, you know, commit treason against the United States, leave or secede. I know I'm taking some hot takes here. Indeed. I'm sorry to all of my Southern history teachers of the past. Mm. Oof. I, you know, I just question, you know, later on. Um, basically, in their um, secession declaration um, in 1860, they list out uh, immediate causes which they say justify their secession from the United States. And one of the ways that they identify themselves, um, along with the other southern states, is they label themselves as slave-holding states. Mm. They distinctively label themselves like what sets us apart and why we are wanting to create our own country is to keep this institution of slavery. And they say that in the document. Yeah, essentially. I mean, yeah, it's like that's how they self-label. They're like, okay, what makes the South different from the North? We are slave-holding states. Yeah. Like that's essentially yeah. how they've labeled. And so, again, I think it comes to this thing of, like, I don't know. I know I can't speak for, obviously, people of 1860. I was not there. But, like, if they're going to self-label as that is their state right. distinction, I have to believe that that's what they thought. Yes, I think so. Too. At least the people in power. And at least the government. A, a, exactly. And going back to the idea of the individual farmer who fought in the war was probably more fighting for... South Carolina's my house right. versus South Carolina owned slaves because like look at us look at us today in America like I have deep objections with with some of the things that are true in American society and some of the ways that we use our military abroad that doesn't change what side I'm on right you know I'm 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 still an American I'm still like I'm on this side if you will I know it's more complicated than that it's much more yeah but, but... even despite having major objections to to the things that we do right so I think there's it's and that, I, my my uncle Greg uh, is I respect him greatly. Um, he's a, a historian and a, a real one. Not to say that we're not. Yeah, but those like, are like not say, you know, like, he is a real historian. And we're he's, half historians. He, <laughs> he is um, a, a big part of, of why I have my passion for history, uh, and in particular, he's very knowledgeable about the Civil War. And but he he kind of takes the approach of like you know the people the people that fought on both sides were average people like you and me, and I feel like that's absolutely true. Um, sure, it's like we are all. Like, the systems, like, I keep talking about it. Like, right. the system is what drives these mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, and we're, we're all actors within that system, both right. complicitly and, and, and otherwise. Um, and we cannot be complicit in the system yeah. any longer. If we actually care mm-hmm. about giving equal rights um, and, like, economic standing, et cetera, et cetera, to people of color in this yeah. country. Like, do we actually care about the original you know, intentions exactly. of this country. We have to keep going back to that. Like, how have we failed to live up to that? I mean, I've, I felt it true for me, but right. I'm a middle-class Christian white man. Like, sure. of course I'm going to feel it. Like, America was built for me. Essentially, yeah. And and just to an, obviously a huge extent to you as well, but even as a woman, like, it took a, long, a much longer time right. before before you had the same rights that, 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 that I would have. Exactly. And I think that's like 1919? something... 1919? 1919, the My 19th God. Amendment. That's not that long ago. I know. It's really not that long ago is what's crazy. You've I mean, just like, been voting for like 100 years. Right. Wow. And then like even... I don't know. I mean, like, it's just kind of crazy to think about like women are still having a difficult time getting the representation like for like our... Like, how we reflect as a percentage of the population is so much less in Congress. Like, you know, oh, it's, nowhere like it's, not it's nowhere close. It's not even close. Nowhere close at all. Isn't there like and the numbers are a, like a couple of crazy for people black senators? Way. Yeah, like barely One or any. Two, I think. It's insane. Yeah. <sighs> we got to do better, folks. Yes, I guess there's three or four. 
It's not proportional, I guess is my point. Right. It should be, what, And I think it just, like, goes into this idea of, like, is representation, I don't know, like, it's, like, is it a political party? Is it people? Like, I think... Sure. It both matter. Yeah. Both matter. Yeah. So... I agree. Um, so, that's the Civil War. We that's all, Civil We War. all know it ends. Uh, and then... So, I think this is where a lot of people, a lot of people, the argument stops for them. Right. They say slavery is over, get over it. It doesn't affect us today. Yeah, like, check, we um, check that box. Why does it affect us today, starting with what happens to black people right after the Civil War? So, I think it pretty much starts, like, right from the get-go. We get the 13th Amendment, which is passed um, and ratified into the Constitution, um, and this happens in 1865, mm-hmm. um, and this... Do you want to go ahead and read Can this Can I read one? the 13th yeah, Amendment? Yes, read the 13th it's Amendment. one of my favorites, both because it's good and scary at the same time. Um, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Okay, so from like the like first glance, you're like, cool. Like this no was, more slavery. Yeah, slavery is now illegal in the United States, essentially. Yes. Except they... From the first, like, from the get-go, they put a caveat in there. Right. So, unfortunately, when you put caveats to something as severe as the institution of slavery... That's a real important comma right there. Comma, except as punishment for a crime. Exactly. So, it creates a loophole where people can enslave other persons if they've been convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. This loophole gets abused from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and you see this in different ways um, with the use of prison labor throughout the South for different factories. Mm-hmm. There was, I was telling you... Which persists today, nationwide. Right, yeah, nationwide, of Privatized course. prisons, there's all kinds of different things. Um, we're going to we're going to recommend some homework for you guys that talks more about that, but just like buckle up and hold on to that that uh, comma clause in, right. in, a, in the amendment there. Exactly. And I mean, like they even had um, in the late 1800s, like these like tunnels being dug into the Tennessee mountains for roads that was using um, prison labor. And many people yeah. died um, because yeah. it was, it, it did reduced their humanity mm-hmm. um, again to an institution of slavery. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have something that's really great and yet continued to be used as a way to oppress people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, then we get the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, 14th Amendment extends citizenship to anyone born in the United States or a naturalized citizen. So there, it alludes to a process mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. becoming a naturalized citizen of the United States, um, which is actually kind of unique to the U.S. Not every country gives you citizenship just because you're born there, actually. Cool. Um, so that's something that's different. Um, and then we get to the okay, so 14th Amendment. We're not going to spend too much time. We get to the 15th Amendment, though. And so it says the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Okay. All right. So that's a good one. Voting rights, important, Mm -hmm. extended to all people in the United States except for women. Um, (sighs) But, you know, I mean, this is a big expansion. Sure. Um, And. Unfortunately, though, we see throughout the Jim Crow um, era, which is what happens after Reconstruction mm-hmm. and um, throughout the South, and to an extent also in like you know Midwest and Northern states yes. as well, um, we get voter suppression. And mm-hmm. Tyler has selected a document that he was going to share mm-hmm. out about voter suppression. Yes, um, so. Voter suppression, obviously, is is making it harder for people to vote, um, which should be very easy to do in America. I think um, we do see it today with in in. Kentucky and Georgia, which is one example of um, ways that this institution has persisted. But um, looking at, and I'll I'll share the the document in a moment, but looking at ways that uh, in heavily black populated areas of Kentucky and Georgia and other states, we've in recent years seen the closing down of many polling locations in those areas, making it harder for black people to vote. Um, And also photo ID requirements, which personally doesn't bother me either way if that's a requirement this is not something i care too much about except if you were also closing down driver's license offices in those counties where you're reducing polling locations causing people to have to travel hours to be able to renew that license well and it also though brings up an issue like you don't get that license for free right is that a form of poll tax then if that's the requirement yeah, that's a good point point. and so i think for me like what's hard is like it adds each like step you add like what the constitution says is me being a citizen like 
at that that's the threshold we should treat that the same way that some people want to treat like gun ownership correct right gun ownership Which, you know, is if, very open if the and government can have too. a tank shouldn't i get to have a tank too <laughs> my, dri- my driveway is big enough i don't know let's put a fighter drone out there i understand <laughs> um in like i don't know like it's, it's basically kind of like i don't think there should be very many barriers Mm-hmm. This is a hot take. I, I just think that it's like if we don't have barriers to other constitutional amendments of ownership of and rights, I do not think we should have barriers to point. this one. Because this is the bread and butter of democracy is voting. Probably the most important thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. I didn't think about it that way. So like, I mean, that certainly causes me to change my perspective a little bit. Um, I guess I guess for me, it's like, how do you make sure there's not fraud and things right. like that? But voter fraud is very... is. Very rare. I mean, it takes forever to get in line. I'm like, who's going to really wait in line right. twice? So let's look at, so Louisiana literacy test. Uh, right. It's a document that I have linked that was around this post-Civil War time. Um, and at the top of the test, it says, this literacy test is to be given to anyone who cannot prove a fifth grade education. I wonder who in the South couldn't prove a fifth grade education. Well, exactly, especially from the get-go. Um, and I think it, it goes into that mm-hmm. deeper issue of segregated education, lack of access to education in general, well, oppression. And of, even for people who had just previously been freed from servitude, exactly. absolutely can't prove a fifth grade education because they don't have one. They did not have access to it. And also probably... Limit, and also it was illegal. Illegal. And probably a limited ability to read and write, making this test very hard to pass. Impossible. I mean, it's a it's a 13-question test. You have 10 minutes to complete the test, and it says, um, do exactly what you were told in each statement, nothing more, nothing less. Be careful as one wrong answer denotes failure of the test. Yeah. One wrong answer out of 13, one you fail wrong. the test. And I'm looking at these questions, and I, I would encourage you guys to print this thing out and take it. I don't think I could pass this test in 10 minutes. No. But I could prove a fifth grade education, so I wouldn't have to take the test. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, and, and this test actually is not even, it, it's just a bunch of brain teasers. It's not even really, um, it, it's not an actual um, representation of literacy. No. And also, the constitutional amendment does not say that a person not needs to be literate to um, vote. Right. That's not even on there. And all, But then it brings it to the issue that... Um, Elections are run by individual states, and we still have this in America, mm-hmm. where we get a vast um, differences between states and like how voting is done mm-hmm. and what is allowed. So, for example, in Texas, we have pretty high barriers to voting actually compared yeah, to other states. Yeah. Like we have to register a month in advance. Um, you also can only register by mail, which I don't understand. I can get my driver's license online. But I thought voting by mail was bad. Well, I'm just very confused This now. is very different. Well, I'm this is confused. like voting by mail. That's a different issue. But like sure. registering to vote by mail, I think it's ridiculous. If I can go online right now, when I'm, I'm about to move in a month, and mm-hmm. I can go and get a driver's license without showing just up to the MV, they send me yeah. a driver's license with that little star so I can travel anywhere in the U.S. with oh, it. I need to do that. Give it to you in the mail. You don't sure. even have to go. Hmm. But I can't do that for... My voting registration? I got to mail that in and trust that USPS is going to get it to the right place? I don't know. Uh, yes, I, I agree. There's a lot of there's a lot of like contradictions here, and I think ample evidence that like and we'll mention sharecropping in a second um, that kept black people in a um, as you said yesterday like kind of a slavery 2.0 in a lot of ways, like preventing them from having the rights that were promised in the Declaration and Constitution, but not really even fully given after the Civil War and after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Um, and so I think that uh, Martin Luther King said it really well in a speech in 1967 he said we must have some compensatory consideration for the handicaps that black people have inherited from the past if a man is entered at the starting line in a race 300 years after another man he would have to perform some impossible feat in order to catch up with his fellow man um which i think speaks to an argument i can granted this is 1967 but could very well have been spoken today um it, it speaks to this idea that like slavery was over get over it it's done you're free now but you have to reckon with with the idea that the people that were wealthy and had power throughout America in 1865 right. or, you know, before the war ended and right after it's the same people. And exactly. so that, that idea of generational wealth being a huge way to build wealth and build assets in America is not something that black people even, even had access to until post civil war. And even then in many ways, not. And so you're saying, get over it. You're now equal. You have all the same opportunities as us when we're looking at these ways that were written into law. Mm -hmm. They didn't say black people can't do these things, but there were ways that... They were intentionally created to suppress the black vote. Exactly. And it's just, to me, it seems seems a little unfair to, to suggest that with... No property, no assets, no ability to read and write, no wealth, no money. Um, you're now expected to to seize the same opportunities that, that white people had had 
prior to that time. I just think it's it just seems unfair to me. Well, and I think that in the words of our friend Max Mills, you cannot talk about the system of racial suppression without talking about economic inequality yes. and suppression as well. Yes. We really have to consider the ways where unchecked capitalism mm-hmm. impacts people differently. I mean, yeah. it's a, it can it has the power actually to suppress large chunks of the population. And, and how um yeah, a whole other episode I think, whole, yeah, whole several episode. episodes. Sorry. But also to the point about how like at times that that groups of people have tried to get together on a class basis. Right. We've seen suppression of of that type of interaction. So was it Bacon's Rebellion? Maybe. Where it was, so it was the, the poor black farmers and the poor white farmers all wanted to get together oh, in response yeah, yeah. to the, the ruling class of that, of that era. And I forget exactly what happened in that situation, but basically the way it turned out was they ended up being pitted against one another mm-hmm. and it created this narrative, which I think still persists a lot today, that like, Oh, you know, black people are the reason that, you know, they're, they're taking these opportunities from you, poor white people. So, like, you know, you should be mad at them for, for taking opportunities that should be yours. And so it started creating this, like, class warfare uh, among people who really should be on the same side. I, I think that narrative persists today. Oh, for because sure. Because I think one thing we really fail to do, and I, I want to bring attention to this right now because it's also going to get discussed in future episodes, is... We talk throughout history about the oppression of people of color. Mm -hmm. We talk about slavery. We talk about immigration and different groups that have been um, brought into and pushed out of the, you know, white culture in in America. But a lot of times I feel like poor white people get left out of this. And so there's sometimes Mm -hmm. this feeling that, well, I've had it hard too. Right. You know, my life has also been difficult and like I've been a victim to some of these, some of these systems, not in the same way, but... I think that we've, we've, and I say this as a person who leans left on many issues, right. we've done a bad job of bringing in white people who are poor into this conversation. Sure. Because it should be, it, we, we should be on the same side. Um, economically. Document, economically, yes. Um, because we, we, we do share that, and I think it's the same, same, the same structure in some ways that keeps people poor is also a structure that seeks to keep down people of color. Um, so I just want to say that too, and we'll, we'll talk more about this in the future, but to people who are white, who are listening, who would consider yourself poor, who have come from poverty, um, please know that I hear you and I want to continue this conversation with you because, um, I, I do think that there's, there's so much more that brings us together than tears us apart. Sure. Um, so sharecropping. Sharecropping. Yes. So, Right. I mean, another example of um, systemic oppression that was permitted in the um, post-Civil War South. So what basically happens is there was, I was just actually listening to this on um, an interview with an author this morning on NPR. Um, There was this idea during Reconstruction that the Republicans that were running um, the operation pretty much in the South post-Civil War, they Mm -hmm. had promised to um, former slaves that they would receive um, 40 acres and a mule, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a, a way to be like, here is some land and like resources to kind of like start, you know, your life in this new freedom. And a lot of times, like in some, like there was, I think there's like a few examples where this like happened to some people, but like the vast majority, this ended up never happening. This promise okay. was actually not fulfilled. Oops. What ends up happening is the white landowners, because they were the ones that owned the land, you know, before, they end up renting out parcels of their farmland to um, the black community mm-hmm. and essentially saying, like, you can grow crops on this. I'm going to charge you this rent. But they controlled all the prices, right? They controlled how much the rent was going to cost. And essentially, they made it so expensive that um, the people that were growing crops and farming that land could never turn a profit to eventually be able to save enough capital and wealth mm-hmm. for them to be able to do something else. They were mm-hmm. basically enslaved to that land again generationally yes. and sharecropping persisted um uh, the, through the 1900s so yeah. this wasn't just Not like a immediately ago. post-civil war thing this is something that persisted i was talking to my brother like my grandparents in arkansas mm-hmm. in the early 1900s like they were neighbors with sharecropping yep. like their farm was um, next to so a sharecropping close. farm. Yeah. So it's like that is really, that's just not that long ago mm-hmm. that this was an economic system ago. of oppression. One granny ago. One granny ago. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we see it continue on um, with the Plessy versus Ferguson decision mm-hmm. in 1898, which ends up allowing for segregation. Um, basically, Reconstruction had tried to, like, you know, set up the stuff, but I don't, people got tired. I don't know exactly, but. 
Yeah. The, the South ends up allow, being allowed to create systems of segregation and oppression, mm-hmm. and they are allowed to keep that system mm-hmm. for 100 years. And we, we should also acknowledge that the North did things that were more subtly racist and racially oppressing And as also well. there was segregation um, there as well. Yeah, that and it, it, just, it just looks different in the North than it does in the South. Um, and I think that's part of that's just the legacy of the Civil War and the legacy of like an agrarian economy. Uh, so there's a lot to that that I don't think we really have time for, but like, please know it is not lost on us that we're, we're not uniquely criticizing the South here. We're trying to right. recognize America's unique history of racial oppression. Well, and essentially all, and all states were complicit in allowing for this system yes. of oppression to persist. Yes. Even Abraham Lincoln himself said in a letter um, to a journalist um, near, the, near the beginning or middle of the Civil War, I can't remember the exact year, um, but I don't remember his exact words, but he basically said, like, my goal is to keep the union together. If that means abolishing slavery, cool. If that means not abolishing slavery, cool. I want to keep the union together. So even Abraham Lincoln, who we herald as being this great person, this freer of slaves, even even he, it was for him, it wasn't a deal breaker issue. Right. So that kind, of, I think that kind of speaks to the, to, to use the phrase, white supremacy that existed at that time and, and in many ways persists today. Sure. Um, should we jump to civil rights a little bit? Yeah, let's chat a little bit about civil and rights. And then kind of go into what's happening today. So we have a civil rights movement, which was roughly a 10-year period uh, with yeah, a, a number of different people. I think it depends. I mean, so it, you can kind of start to see the beginnings of what we would consider, like, the, the civil rights movement, like, the first big one in the years after World War II. So in the mm-hmm. in late 1940s, um, Truman signs an executive order that desegregates the military, which was actually a pretty big first step. Um, cause Good we, on Truman for that, like, that exact one thing. Yeah, well, I was yeah. just like, Truman, Truman uh, we can, not a great guy. We can overall. analyze, like, almost everyone in history. There is some. What's the, the joke in the good place? Uh, who's in the bad place? Every uh, every U.S. president except Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, so I was like, it's yeah. like, and I'm, like, not even sure on it. But yeah. We'll see. <laughs> but, um, exactly. So, we, we see this first move, and then we get into the 1950s, and a lot of civil rights organi- organizers through the NAACP, mm-hmm. um, and other or organizations that are actually created in the 1950s, such as the Southern uh, Christian Leadership Conference, mm-hmm. the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, mm-hmm. are all starting to gain traction. Um, and in 1955, we actually see um, kind of an expansion of awareness of some issues that early civil rights um, leaders, such as Ida B. Wells in the late 1800s, were trying to raise awareness on, which is um, the issue of lynching and murder in the South. Yes. Um, so in 1955, Emmett Till is murdered mm-hmm. um, and lynched in Money, Mississippi, um, and his funeral is advertised like very, very broadly. I mean, it really raises a lot of awareness to the severity of the violence that is happening against the black community throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see um, this is seen as like um, kind of a unifying um, point for the civil rights movement. And in 1957, we get the Montgomery bus boycotts Mm -hmm. being led by Martin Luther King. Um, And so Martin Luther King really gets his start with this leadership through the Montgomery bus boycotts. There's some really cool speeches you can look at there that he gave at Holt Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Mm -hmm. um, if you're interested in learning more about this. But I think what's important to recognize, too, is... I, like, if Martin Luther King was today, as Mount Chandler said of the yes. church, yes. I think people would label him as a communist. Like, yeah. you know, and they would say, like, he's was a radical. Mm-hmm. And because I think it's a lot of times we allow ourselves to, like, remember him in a certain way. We, like, we put him in a box. In the folklore way that you mentioned yesterday about, like, right. we like we like cute little tied up things and... Yeah. We like cute stories. We like little, yeah, stories that just, like, have a good ending and it's everything's happy. And, I I mean, Martin Luther King, on when he was assassinated, he was about to start another protest movement in Tennessee for economic justice for the black community. So, in his mind, the civil rights didn't end in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. It wasn't even, the work was not yet done. Mm -hmm. And so, I think um, it's important that we recognize that the work is not done that, no. that the civil rights movement didn't just like wrap up in 65. Oh, and, not even close. Not even you close. Know, not even close. And also to, you know, we, we want to take this through the lens of, of racism throughout American history, not just on the black community, but I want to highlight some uh, abuses of the Latinx community as well during the kind of early 1900s before civil rights. So one example would be, you know, lynchings happening in Los Angeles, Texas. Um, and when we say lynching, we sometimes mean like hanging someone, which I think was the original terminology for lynching, but also being dragged behind a truck, 
being well, executed by gunfire. It, it's, um, it's a racially charged murder. Exactly, exactly. Um, so you know, Antonio Gomez in 1911, um, a mob of 100 people hung this 14-year-old boy um, who was accused of murder. And so kind of pointing back to the 13th Amendment, which, comma, except as punishment for a crime of which the person has been duly convicted. So it's what, what lynching does, which was like super common throughout America in this mm-hmm. time period, is it, it takes away the opportunity to even have that trial. Right. So like, yes, there probably should be consequences if you murder someone or steal from someone. Well, and but even if people- we have judge, jury, and executioner being mobs uh, of people that right. say, we believe this person did this thing. Emmett Till, Antonio Gomez, um, George Floyd. Right. I mean, it, it, it continues on. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to recognize that um, the the two men that murdered Emmett Till were put on trial with an all-white jury because you can only be on a jury if you can vote, if you're registered to vote. And so it created a system, and they were like, oh, and there was like years later in an interview, like the wife of one of them was like, oh, yeah, but like we lied about it. Like, it was, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, it was yeah. like, they're just like, it wasn't a real thing, but they just Very straight up murdered someone. Um, other other examples, the civil rights movement, I think, is my favorite time of history, and mm-hmm. I we should probably do a whole nother episode just on that because I think sure. it's super interesting. Um, but... One thing I want to highlight about that is, is you know, there were different different civil rights leaders with different aims. And so I think Malcolm X kind of took more of a like black nationalist approach, sure. whereas Martin Luther King took more of a um, more of a, a peaceful approach through direct action, which, you know, that didn't mean you know, peaceful, like we're not going to hurt you, but you are going to be uncomfortable sure. when we are sitting here or when we are marching um, and then, you know, to be beaten and put in jail and all those different things that well, happened to him. And I think Malcolm X too, like he was in the, in the early 1950s, he really expanded um, the movement for civil rights for um, the black community. So right. like he was a really significant player in um, just kind of like getting like in, in organizing. And um, I think that a lot of times we only like, like learn about Malcolm X in the context, like he was, like against MLK or something like we just kind of like have and, a know, I, I don't mean thing. them as a, as a contrast or I guess as a contrast yeah. but not as a as a dichotomy in which one is right and one is wrong which we were talking about this um also yesterday with like for some reason when we're talking about leaders of civil rights like the tendency of like how it's taught in America like in, in history classes to like have a compare and contrast it's like with Booker T. Washington versus W.B. Du Bois yeah and it's like and what if they were both part of a movement that was meaningful not that they had to be like opposed which we do it today right. I mean we we look at people on the left who don't like people on the further left and vice versa right uh, and then we look at people on the right who don't like people on the left or people on the farther right and vice versa and so this it's it's almost this infighting might even be more dangerous than the than the polar division sure. in some ways um, but to, to your to point about extent. like how we've right to extent to your point about how we've like we we dichotomize people like Malcolm X with Martin Luther King, um, I that's a tactic I feel like mm-hmm. um, because so to the point about we mentioned um, you know poor black people and poor white people teaming up in the post Civil War days uh, or rather pre Civil War um, the Black Panthers in Chicago teamed up with a um, a group of white poor people who call themselves the young patriots and i have never heard I, of this. I couldn't believe you never heard this i so i learned about them really recently and i was reading a whole thing about them i was like this is very interesting so the the young patriots um they were basically you know economically to the left and so they were they wanted to team up with the black panthers because they recognized that like yes there is a racial problem but it's also an economic problem and as as people who have been oppressed economically we're going to team up together and the black panthers were like yeah cool like you can hang out with us that's fine um but the young patriots they, they there's um the, the, there's the, some problematic things there were some them. problematic things they 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 did say white power um Yikes. and they did they did have the confederate flag as their emblem but almost ironically like i what i was reading about is like they chose that emblem out of the irony of what the confederate flag represented mm-hmm. and so the black panthers were like uh, I think it was like Fred Hampton and his crew in Chicago um, were like, I mean, you could you could chill with us. That's cool, but like, just be ready to like explain yourself uh, regarding certain choices right. that you've made about your presentation. I mean, but you would have to. My point about sharing them is 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 they got together and these movements kind of got together with each other in Chicago. They were consistently undermined by the U.S. government, the FBI. Mm-hmm. J. Edgar Hoover. They were arrested. They were discredited. They were followed by the police. Um, Fred Hampton. Well, so was Martin Luther King. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why we know he cheated on his wife. Well, right? Uh, because of the surveillance. I don't know. Maybe like, he didn't. But, but then it's like, I don't know. Maybe he didn't. I I'm not know. sure. I, I think that all of that is like, was I watching that movie, Selma? Uh-huh. I, and I'm, I just remember the whole time being like, how much of this? But then I was like, is that was that was the intention of that 
to like try and draw away from the importance of his movement. Right. I don't know. Exactly. And that but that's my point is like the the undermining of these movements. Um, and then the way that Fred Hampton and his crew in in Chicago were murdered. Mm-hmm. Like straight up murdered by I think it was either Chicago PD or FBI, I don't remember, but they did a raid on the apartment and just killed him point blank range. At least that's what, you know, the report officially came out and said of the eighty something shots that were fired, only one was from a non FBI gun. Whoa. So it was it was a massacre because these these guys were getting close to liberation. Mm-hmm. Um and this was, you know, early 1960s um sounds like i need to read more about this because you like, definitely should it's I'm super like, interesting i don't know that's why i want to do a whole thing we need to choose some documents for uh civil rights and just talk through that sure. uh, at some point um anyway so the civil rights movement wasn't that long ago it was one of our parents ago like right. you know one one age um that's not that far it's still going on let's quickly say a couple of ways that we think it's still going on and then we'll give the homework so i think one example um if we want to if we want to take a primary document because that's really my approach i think that the Shelby County versus Holder decision, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's a Supreme Court decision really recently. Was it like 20? It was thir- 2013 or 2006, something like that. Something like that. And uh, pretty recently. Again, years. Who I'm cares? Like, ah, we can look them up. It was Google within up. our lifetime. Within and our we lifetime. And we are less than 30 years old. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And this takes out some of the key provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Oops. Not great because what's happening um, and we're seeing... In the United States, there are several states where it is very difficult to vote. There's a closing of polling locations. Kentucky, there's lack Georgia. of voting, uh, voter registration mm-hmm. drives that are like you know monitored and regulated. And again, it all goes to we have this decentralized system of voting. Um, it's run by individual states, and I, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't allow. I, I don't know, like it, this. There's not a lot of accountability no. um, in ensuring that the right to vote is equal and represented across every single state for every single community in this country. Yeah, it's really, we don't it's really not. have that, mm-hmm. and so I, I think that's important to recognize as well. Um, mm-hmm. And you were going to give some homework for other ways that people could talk yes. about the modern issues. One last thing, I hear this argument a lot, and I think I want to speak to it really quickly. Um, we often hear the argument that there were other groups besides black people that were oppressed throughout mm-hmm. American history, and which is, you know, important to discuss. Yeah. And we've mentioned that a little bit, but I think sometimes when people use that argument, they're using it as a way to draw attention away from what's being talked about. So take right. like Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter, that type of mm-hmm. that type of dichotomy. Um, the reason I bring that up is because I, you know, so I'm thinking specifically about um, Japanese internment right. in World War II and people of was it hundreds of thousands. There's yeah, a lot of no. people being like locked into prisons and for years. Executive order ninety Yeah, ex- mm-hmm. executive order ninety sixty six was um, signed and implemented by FDR. And again, I think what it, what's it, it shouldn't take away from this argument of a system of oppression because again, that law drew a line by race, and that's the point. I and allowed yes. the government to imprison large groups of American citizens. Yeah. Many of those Japanese Americans were American citizens, and mm-hmm. they lost their property, they mm-hmm. lost their businesses, mm-hmm. they were imprisoned for six years, mm-hmm. in like the middle that's of a long time, a long time. And and we just we just let it happen, right? And, and I think in some ways, and you could say the law is the law, and immigration law is what it is. But in some ways, we are doing that with detention centers now and migrant uh, facilities in, sure. around the border. We can get I mean, into that later. That's a whole other episode of we could talk about the, how the color line has impacted. Um, mm-hmm. immigration law in the United States, starting with the Chinese Exclusion Act And how of certain immigrants were welcomed based on where they come from and others weren't. How Correct. Irish people were first rejected, even though they appear white, and then later brought into that fold of whiteness. There's so much here, you guys. Um, but to, to your your point about like this this race line, yes, yes, we have done bad things to a lot of groups of people. Um, and I think we need to draw attention to all those things. I love the New Deal. I think it's fantastic. I think FDR is a huge POS for what he did to Japanese Americans. And for that reason, I... I do not call him i do not list him among my like favorite presidents because we have to be we have to be real about this right we have to say like you you can contribute something good but you also did some really bad stuff correct and that's not okay and it's in but it's it's also very american uh, exactly. in a lot of ways unfortunately and unfortunately that was pretty um on par for the democratic party at the time yep. too yep yep uh so th- shout out to everyone who who wants to either insult the republicans or the democrats we will do both we will do both i um, happy to do that um also reparations were paid to japanese citizens uh, or japanese americans who were who interred yes um, they did probably not enough it was definitely but not that enough. makes that makes um that story unique to the black experience unique unique to other experiences in which Japanese Americans were made whole in some ways. I know there's no way that you can financially compensate for what was done. Yeah, but you can't financially compensate for six years. Exactly. But there well, was point a process. Being, there's the there's you know the families were 
given financial, mm -hmm. uh, you know, financial resources to make up for that in some way. That's something we have not done for other populations. Right. So we, we can have, have this conversation about reparations for black people if we recognize Martin Luther King's quote about how this ra racism and what happened to us in the past and what happened with slavery and civil rights, there is residual. These things, as we've said, did not magically stop. Right. Um, that residue lives with us because we people were alive during the civil rights movement. Their kids are alive now. We are the children of people who grew up during that time. Um, and that stuff really does get passed down. There's also a lot of evidence to suggest that trauma gets passed down through generations and that poverty itself is traumatic. So if it, mm -hmm. and uh, people who, who are rich can pass down or at least have some level of wealth can pass that down and on and on and on. But what, what has to be equally true is the opposite of that, that poverty can also be passed down. Right. Um, especially when structures still exist to make it harder to escape poverty. Also, such a large other conversation. I know. This is so like, much. I was like, I need to be keeping notes. But I, <laughs> basically, we say all these things right here at the end and leave all these kind of open ended ideas for you. I will go back and make notes. I will find guests that can talk about these things better than we can, right. maybe. Um, but I want to leave you with some some homework and some resources that we've, that we've recommended. Right. Um, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about how racist structures persist today. The reason we've chosen not to really talk about that is because we wanted to set you up with the historical context. And then ask you to watch 13th on Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, it is a documentary that is about an hour and 30 minutes long. It really lays out really well the ways that um, our structure of racial oppression exists to this day through things like the criminal justice system, mass incarceration, and the world drugs. Um, Brittany, your book recommendation? Yes, I have a book recommendation, and it's uh, The New Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. um, this book really lays out how systems of, of oppression against the black community specifically have persisted um, post-civil rights, post-civil war, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, on and into the modern context. And I think it does a really great job of laying this out. Mm -hmm. I also have a podcast mm -hmm. recommendation. This um, one. This one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is <laughs> Please listen to Left and White. Um, but also, um, I'm recommending uh, NPR's Code Switch. Um, and Code Switch has a lot of really awesome episodes that just talk about um, the intersectionality of racial issues um, and economic issues. And, and, and it talks a lot about the history of um, oppression against certain groups in the United States. And it talks about modern issues right now of how, um, you know, different racial groups in the United States what their experience is right now. It's really interesting, super good. Mm -hmm. And I also kind of wanted to say too, it's like, again, like Tyler was saying, like we didn't, we were setting up, you know, this history so that y'all can like continue on and like learn about it. Like this, mm. this is a continual learning process and this story is not yet over. Mm -mm. The civil rights story is not finished. Mm -hmm. It's very much still in process. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, any shout outs? Uh, big shout out to Max Mills and Brian. Yes. Uh, Brian Abramowitz. I think that they're probably the only ones that have probably listened to the end. They've made it this far. If you made it, if you made it this far, um, text me. Yeah, if you made it like, this far. Yo, I really yeah, loved so, it. Or I really know. hated it. And I think that. Send me an old navy t-shirt in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> That's the true <laughs> test. Actually, no. If you make it to the end, I'll send you an old navy t-shirt in the mail. You won't do that. I will. I get, no, I'm not going to go only navy. $5. I, I don't know. Like four fifty. I'm not going to risk COVID. Thank y'all for listening. To see resources and additional content for this episode, visit leftandwhite.com and follow at leftwhitepodcast on Instagram. Thanks to Chris Derrett and Claire Shakespeare for marketing and promotional support and to the Creative Commons for music. This week's theme song is titled Eracism by Danny Lobratis.